Thankful to be back with you this morning and desire your continued prayers that the Lord would direct my words and that he would use his word in us this morning, that he would turn our presence here into praise as we consider uh, the revelation of his word and of himself. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together one more time. Almighty Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Father, we thank you for each one that is gathered in this place. And Father, we ask that you would receive the the praise that we have offered up in song as we've spoken to one another in, in hymns. And Father, as we have uh, sem- uh, attempted to extol your name and to reflect upon your glories and your goodness and your mercy toward us. Father, we ask now as we give our hearts to prayer and to... Uh, to your attention, Father, that we would be focused solely upon your word and yourself as you're revealed in it. Father, we ask that you would be with us now, that you would direct my thoughts and my words, and that you would cause uh, what I say to be an expression of your word, Father, and that you would magnify your name in us. Father, enable us to be brought to a place of worship as we consider you and as we recognize the truth of your word and Father, of your interaction in our life through your Holy Spirit, Father, cause us to rejoice and to praise you and to be lifted up before you, Father, that we might honor you, that we might bow down low, and Father, call you our God. Father, we give you thanks, and we ask, Father, that you would be with each one here, Father, that you would work in us for your glory and your praise. It's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. I'm going to turn this morning to the fourth chapter of John's Gospel, the fourth chapter of the book of John. This morning, uh, those of you who were here for our earlier Bible study, we looked at the subject of worship or the idea and concept of worship in the scripture and in our lives and want to continue those thoughts uh, here in the book of John in chapter 4 as Jesus deals with this subject. Uh, Those who weren't here this morning, uh, the others got a head start on you, I'll try to fill in the gaps as I'm able to uh, to hopefully uh, enable this to make sense to us. We talked about worship this morning as more than just our presence in an assembly, as more than just uh, the the actions that we undertake or the, the religious practices that we engage in. We looked at the example of Cain and Abel who both came before the Lord on the appointed time to worship or to do sacrifice and Cain's sacrifice was not accepted, and Cain was not accepted. Abel's sacrifice was accepted, and Abel was accepted. And the reason for that was, first and foremost, the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives, the one who was of God, the other was not of God. But more than that, the heart of the worshiper. Worship is not about what we do. It's about how we view God or the object of our worship. If we see him as he is, if we're extolling him, the very word worship simply means to bow down or to subjugate oneself, to prostrate oneself before one who is greater. The idea that is given to explain the word worship in the Greek language is that of what a dog does when it comes to his master and it licks its master's feet. It's it's acknowledging the superiority of the one that it's worshiping. And that's the way that we come before God if we see him as he is because we realize we have no standing, no right to even be in his presence. We're rejoicing, we're regaling the glories of God and we're declaring that as we come to worship him. 
So in John chapter 4, Jesus, having in the previous chapter declared to Nicodemus the essential reality that we cannot come to the kingdom of God, we can't even see the kingdom of God except we be born of the spirit of God, and then talking about the salvation that is in Christ Jesus from the condemnation that is the darkness of this world, he then comes to the city of Samaria. John chapter 4 says, When the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. Jesus did everything in his ministry with purpose, and traveling from Judea to Galilee does necessitate a a path through the region of Samaria or the northern part of of what used to be the kingdom of Israel. But Jesus was a a man of purpose and he did everything for a reason. And this verse 4 mustn't be overlooked. He must needs go through Samaria. He didn't just go through the region of Samaria. He went by the city of Samaria. And as he came by the city of Samaria, it says he cometh to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. His disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of, the, of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, asketh drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us this well, and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus says, Well, first go call your husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband, and that saidst thou truly. The woman said unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. I want to find this morning our text in these last few verses that we read, the concept of worship as Jesus describes it to this woman. But it's needful to understand the context and to have read all of this because 
Just put yourself in the place of this woman of Samaria. Here this Jew who's a stranger who doesn't really belong is here by the well where you go every day and you draw water. Out of a deep well, a well that's been there for a very lengthy period of time. It has good water, but it's water you come to draw every day. And this man says, give me some water. And you say, well, that's weird that you would ask me that. You're not even supposed to talk to me. You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. And don't you realize the Jews think of Samaritans as dogs and as unclean? And if I do draw the water and give it to you, your people would say that that would make you unclean. Are you sure you want what you asked for? And Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who I am, when I said to you, give me to drink, you would have turned the question around and you would have asked that I give you water, living water. The woman is confused as you and I would be as well. She's completely confused by this statement. Here he is asking her for a drink of water, and when she responds and says, are you sure you want water from me? He says, if you knew who I was, you would be asking me to give you water. So she says, the well is deep, and you don't have a bucket, and you don't have a rope. You don't have a means of drawing out water. How would you give me this water you're talking about if I did ask of it? Why would I ask water from you? At least I've got a bucket. But then she asks this, Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? So the Samaritan woman is hearkening back to Jacob, which the Samaritans were an interesting group of crossbred people. They were a people who descended from the tribes of Israel that had lived in the northern kingdom prior to the captivity. But their kingdom had been overrun and overtaken. And unlike the Jews who were taken in mass to Babylon and then restored back to the city of Jerusalem in the days of King Cyrus, the northern kingdoms were overrun, overtaken, and others were brought in to intermix with them to destroy their cultural and their ethnic identity. That was the pattern that the Assyrians and later the Babylonians typically followed. They wanted to destroy national identity and nationalism by mixing up the ethnic and, and cultural uh, divides. Well, they did that successfully, so what was left in that former northern kingdom that was now called Samaria was a mixture of Israelites who had intermarried and interwoven themselves into the various other ites of the land. So they were mixed up and confused. But one thing they did was claimed the heritage that they had once been the proud nation of Israel. And because their territory was the same as that of Israel, they claimed the heritage of Israel. So they claimed Jacob as their father. And they claimed to be worshipers of the God of Jacob, but they worshipped in a very strange way. For one thing, they didn't have access to the Ark of the Covenant, to the tabernacle and the temple and everything God had ordained for worship. So they established a religion where they worshipped in the mountains of Samaria. And their worship was not a worship prescribed by God in the Old Testament scripture. It wasn't a worship of daily and yearly sacrifices of feasts. It was a worship that rather claimed the name of the God of Israel, but worshipped him much the way they worshipped Baal in the high places of Canaan. And that's the way they worshipped. 
but they claimed to worship the God of Jacob, and they had some things that were uh, uh, pertained to Jacob. They had Jacob's well here, where Jacob had digged a well, and it was a well that still, after all of these centuries, produced good water. And they're proud of that well, and they're proud of the, the land of Jacob and the heritage, the nativity of Jacob. So she asked Jesus, this Jew that has asked water of her, are you greater than our father Jacob? It was a bold claim to claim Jacob as her father, but she says, are you greater than Jacob? Well, the answer is, yes, I'm greater than Jacob. Jesus has already stated that if you knew the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, give me to drink, you would have asked of me drink. Jesus responds to her question in a curious way. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water shall thirst again. Simple concept. Jacob's well is a well that produces good water, but you have to draw that water every day. And you have to drink of that water over and over again. You drink of that water and you thirst again. Am I greater than Jacob? He says, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Now, Jesus has already used this this expression to refer to the Holy Spirit, and he's going to reveal that that's what he's saying here as well. In the previous chapter, you remember, he said to Nicodemus, as Nicodemus likewise was confused by the way Jesus was talking, Jesus said, you must be born again. And Nicodemus said, what do you mean? As an old man, am I to enter back into my mother and be born again? He's confused, and Jesus clarifies things by uttering something more confusing. Jesus answered Nicodemus in verse 5 and said, Except a man be born of water and of or even the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So he uses water as, as, as an emblem of the spirit. Well, he does that as he speaks to this woman. Whoever drinketh of this of the water that I shall give him, shall never thirst. That is, the one who has my spirit is never going to thirst, is never going to be lacking. Because the gift of the Spirit of God is not something that comes and goes. When the Holy Spirit indwells a child of the King, when the Holy Spirit brings the new birth, the regenerative work, when the Holy Spirit takes hold of one of His, the Holy Spirit never departs. There is a change that is made that is an everlasting change. And Jesus tells this woman, the water that I give makes one never to thirst. The water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Well, the woman still is thinking in fleshly natural terms, just like Nicodemus was in the previous chapter. She says, well, 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 then give me that water. That sounds great. I would love not to have to come to this well and draw every day. Sounds like a a, a deliverance from labor. Give me this water that I thirst not. Jesus responds and says, go get your husband. Bring him hither. Well, sir, I have no husband. Jesus tells her a little bit about herself. You've said well. That's right. You don't have a husband. You have someone but he's not your husband. And you've had five husbands. He declares to this woman that he knows the manner of person that she is, the manner of life that she's lived, the shame of her life. 
the sinfulness of her character. The woman is amazed by his knowledge. How does he know this about her? Who is this? What kind of man is this? It comes back to that question, if you knew who it was that spoke to you, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew what this encounter meant in your life, then you would have reacted differently. The woman says, Sir, I perceive thou art a prophet. (laughs) What an understatement. Just imagine, put yourself in her shoes. Sir, give me this water so I won't have to come and draw. Go get your husband. Sir, I don't have a husband. You're right, you don't have a husband. You're living in sin with one who's not your husband. And you had five husbands previously. Wow. You must be some kind of a prophet. How did you know that? That's what she says. And then she says, I know what I want to ask you. If you're a man of God, let's solve this age-old debate. Our fathers say that God is to be worshipped in these mountains. Because after all, this is Jacob's territory. This is where Jacob lived. This is where Jacob kept his flocks. It's where Jacob dwelt. Surely this is where we ought to worship. Surely our worship is better. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you Jews, you say Jerusalem is the place that men ought to worship. So if you're a prophet, if you're a man who can tell me everything I ever did, tell me this, how do we worship God? Here or in Jerusalem? What's she doing? Well, one thing she's doing is trying to change the subject. We always like to do that, right, when it gets uncomfortable. When people want to talk to us about our sins, our errors, what we need to do differently... Let's have a theological debate. Yeah, that's good. That that righteous living, I know I need to be doing. That repentance, I know that's important. But what do you think about predestination? What do you think about limited atonement? Let's talk about something controversial. Well, here's the most controversial topic she can think of. Where should men worship? And Jesus answers the question in a very uncomfortable way for her. Jesus said to her in verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh, when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. She said, I perceive you're a prophet. Jesus is going to lay some prophecy on her right here. There's a time coming soon when you're not going to worship here or there. The question was, where should we worship? Jesus says, in the near future, the answer is neither place. You worship You know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. There's the answer to her question. Not only are you not worshiping in the right place, you're not worshiping the right person. You know not what you worship. And that's something we should stop and think about for a moment. Those of you who are here this morning, just think about how that relates in your life or in the lives of anyone who claims to worship God but doesn't see God, doesn't know God, who goes through the motions of coming and sitting in the pew, coming and calling themselves a Christian. But when they think of Christ, they're like the Jews of whom Jesus asked, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? And they say, well, he's David's son. And Jesus says, if that's true, why did David call him Lord? 
You see, if you're not thinking the right things of God, you're not worshiping God. It doesn't matter where you worship. And Jesus says to her, ye worship, you know not what. Why does he say that? Well, they're worshiping God, not in accordance with the commandments of God's word. God laid out a series of laws for worship. He set out a course of the priesthood. He said, do these sacrifices on these specific days in this specific manner. And it was all centered around the idea of a temple with a tabernacle, with with an altar and sacrifices. And they've got none of that stuff. And they're worshiping the God Jehovah in accordance with traditional practices that belong to animistic and idolatrous pagan religion. Jesus says, you don't even know God, but you claim to worship him. You worship, you know not what. What else can we take from that statement? Everybody worships someone or something. Everyone worships. You say, well, what about atheists? They don't worship. Yes, they do. Atheists worship the idea that man is the highest creature in this world. They worship themselves. Or they worship at the idol of science as though it has all the answers. And it again points back to man and man's ability to comprehend. Everyone worships something. But we don't all know what we worship. Jesus says, you worship, you know not what. Well, the Apostle Paul came to Athens. And there as he was walking through Athens, what did he find? He found an altar. And the altar was inscribed to the unknown God. And he was stirred up when he saw that. And he comes to Mars Hill where they asked him to speak and they asked him to give a defense or an explanation of what it is that he's proclaiming. And he says, as I beheld your devotions or your acts of worship, I observed an altar that was inscribed to the unknown God. And he says, him therefore that you ignorantly worship... Him declare I unto you. Jesus says to the woman at the well, ye know not what ye worship. Paul says to the men of Athens, whom ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. And then what does Paul do at Athens? He begins to describe this God that they so ignorantly worshiped. He begins to tell them who their unknown God is. And this is what he says to him. If you turn to Acts chapter 17. Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar to this inscri- with this inscription to the unknown God. Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. This is him. God that made the world and all things therein. Seeing he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him, Though he be not far from every one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. We might come back to that here in a minute. 
But Paul speaks the same message that Jesus does to a different people. What's the commonality? Him whom you ignorantly worship. Jesus says to this woman here at the well, you worship, you know not what. But you're still worshiping. You're still bowing down. And whether you're bowing down to a man, whether you're bowing bowing down to an altar of sin, or bowing down to your own self-interestedness, your own pleasures and desires, you're worshiping. Jesus says to this woman, you worship, you know not what. Maybe you don't know what it is that you're worshiping, but you're still worshiping. And if you're not worshiping God, then you're sinning against God. And Jesus says to her, you worship, you know not what. We know what we worship. What's the great advantage that the Jews had? It's that they had knowledge of God. The covenant of God was given to them. And Paul addresses that in the Roman letter. What does he say? He says, what advantage then hath the Jew much in every way? Why? Because to them were the oracles of God committed. Jesus said, we know what we worship. We know who we worship. And we worship in accordance with the commands of God. So up until this point, Jesus says to the woman, the answer to your question is, your fathers are wrong. These mountains are not where men ought to worship. Jerusalem is where men ought to worship. It's where we worship. Salvation is of the Jews. Jesus says in a very real way, God's deliverance, God's glory was manifest in and to the Jews. They were his chosen people. And Jesus also here strips away her her false identity that she's claiming with with Jacob. And she says, Jacob's not your father. Jacob is the father of Israel. The Jews are the descendants of Jacob. They're the ones who have the claim to that heritage. Salvation is of the Jews. But Jesus doesn't leave her there. And what a sad state she would have been in if he had. If he'd have simply said, okay, I'll answer your question. Your fathers are wrong. We're right. Case closed. But he doesn't do that. Jesus says, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You don't know what you worship. We do know. Salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is. Right now. Jesus tells her right now you can worship. Though you're not of the Jews. Though you are not in Jerusalem. The hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. Jesus has brought this discussion full circle. He started out by saying, if you'd have known the gift of God and who it was that said to thee, give me to drink, you would have asked me for living water. And now he brings it back there. The true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Jesus Christ has come into this woman's life as a gift of God. And he's brought with him Knowledge. He's brought with him revelation. He's brought with him truth. But he's brought with him the idea that the Spirit of God can dwell with men. The true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. The reality is no one can worship him without the Spirit. 
Because no one can understand, no one can comprehend, no one can truly believe without the presence of the Spirit of God. And that's what Paul was talking about as he gives this lesson there in Acts 17. What did Paul say? He said that God's made of one blood all nations of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and determine the times before appointed, the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord. That they should seek the Lord. That they should seek the Lord. If haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. The problem in seeking the Lord is not that he's hard to find because he's everywhere present, he's nowhere absent. God is right here, right now. So you would think anyone who seeks the Lord will find him, right? Paul says, if haply, if perchance, if it is the case that they feel after him. Where's that feeling after him come from? Why is it when Jesus Christ came preaching, declaring his own gospel, thousands heard, maybe even millions heard, but only a very few followed, only a very few believed? It wasn't that he wasn't accessible. Jesus was standing there in their midst. They saw him, they heard him, they handled him. But only a few remained followers of him. And even they did with great difficulty. In John chapter 6, as Jesus preaches to thousands, he says, none of you can have any part with me except you partake of my flesh and of my blood and you partake of my sufferings. And he says, your relationship with me is only as my Father draws you, only as my Father compels you. And I came to do his will and not to be your servant. And I am the bread that has come down from heaven. You must partake of me. And the multitudes vanished. They all left. They all turned aside. And only a few are left. And Jesus turns to that last remaining few and he says, will you also go away? And it's only those few, represented by Peter, who says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Paul says, if happily they might feel, they should feel after him. Though he be not far from every one, he's not far from any of you. The problem is not that God is so distant that he can't be found to worship. The problem is the Spirit must compel the worship. The Spirit's presence is necessary. And that's what Jesus is telling this woman by the well. God is a Spirit. God is Spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. There's an important reason Jesus points this out about our worship. Because there are some who worship according to truth, but without the presence or leadership of the spirit. And there are some who attempt to worship with what they perceive to be spirit. But there's no truth. And God's not looking for people to worship him according to truth without spirit. He's not looking for those to worship with a lot of fervor, with a lot of spirit, without truth. And even those upon whom the spirit of God has moved must, by the leadership of that spirit, desire and access truth 
for their worship to be acceptable to God. You see, it's a, it's a combination, it's a formula that's here given. The true worshipers must worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Well, Jesus has just said, essentially, you worship, you know not what. You think that having the desire to worship alone is enough, and you're worshiping in a place God never said you could worship. And he says the Jews, they worship according to truth. Why? Because salvation is to the Jews. They've got the truth. But they've misapplied, they've misinterpreted, and there's no spirit presence there. You say, well, Jesus is talking about the Jews. He's not talking about Christians. And Christians, we all worship according to truth and spirit, right? Well, Jesus writes to the church at Ephesus, which is established in the truth. He writes to them in the uh, second chapter of Revelation. And he says, you've done well. You're established in orthodoxy. You've examined those who claim to be apostles and are not, and you've found them to be liars. You've excluded them from your fellowship and you've declared truth and you're sound and you've eradicated the heretics. But he says to the church at Ephesus, I have somewhat against you because you've left your first love. You've got truth, but the spirit hasn't enlightened you, hasn't invigorated you, hasn't given you a passionate love for the person of the Savior. And he says, if you don't find that love, if you don't worship in spirit and in truth, I'm going to take the candlestick away from you, out of your midst, and you're going to cease to be a church recognized by the Father. You're going to cease to be a people who worship. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. In order for us to worship, we must have an understanding of who it is that we worship, of what that means. And that means we must be brought to a place where from our hearts, from the depths of our souls, we acknowledge our soul dependence upon Christ. And that's what brings us low before him. The word worship means what? To bow down, to acknowledge our unworthiness And his worth. He's worthy. He's worthy. He's worthy of praise. This morning we read, and I think we'll go back to Psalm 86, where David addresses the Lord. Verse 6, Give ear, O Lord, unto my prayer, and attend to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble I will call upon thee, for thou wilt answer me. Among the gods there is none like unto thee, O Lord, neither are there any works like unto thy works. All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and shall glorify thy name, for thou art great, and thou doest wondrous things. Thou art God alone. The Spirit compels us to worship, to praise God, to acknowledge his glory, his greatness, his deity, And our dependence upon him, our unworthiness and our inability, our inability to do anything of value apart from his grace and his work in us. Jesus, as he was about to depart, his disciples 
presence as he was about to go to the cross and die. And they were going to be scattered for a moment and then drawn back together to remain faithful unto death. Jesus says to them in chapter 14 of John's gospel, beginning in verse 15, If ye love me, keep my commandments. I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. What did he say to the woman by the well? If you'd have asked of me, I would have given you living water. The water that I give shall be a well of water springing up within you unto everlasting life. To his disciples, he says, I'm going to pray the Father to give you a comforter. The comforter is the spirit of truth. The true worshipers must worship me in spirit and in truth. This is the spirit of truth. One that the world cannot receive because it seeth him not. Why doesn't it see him? Because except a man be born of the spirit of God, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Right? That's what Jesus said. Here he says, the world cannot receive because it seeth him not. Neither knoweth him, but you know him. For he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Jesus says the Spirit is going to abide. That's what we talked about earlier. When the Spirit indwells, the Spirit remains. The Spirit remains forever. That work of God continues in every one of His children, making us vessels of worship and praise because we know Him, because He dwells in us. Jesus, in verse 18, makes an interesting statement. He says, I'm going to go away. I'm going to pray the Father to send you a comforter. The Spirit of truth is going to dwell in you. Then he says, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Jesus believed in the Trinity of the Godhead. How do I know that? He says, the Spirit is going to come when I go away, and I'm going to come. Why? Because we three are one. Yet a little while the world seeth me no more, but ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. He says, I'm going away, but I'm still alive, and I'm still going to be with you. In that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. Jesus says, your connectedness with me is going to connect you to the Father, because I and the Father are one. Going on down in the remainder of this chapter, he says in verse 26, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost... Whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. He says the Comforter is going to instruct you. The Comforter is going to teach you truths which enable you to what? To worship. Because the knowledge you have of God makes him appear that much more glorious, which makes you that much more a worshiper of him. He's going to bring to remembrance the things that I've said. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Why? Because of the things you know. Because of what I've taught you. You've heard how I said to you, I go away and come again unto you. If ye loved me, ye would rejoice. Because I said I go to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. There's an interesting chastisement in that statement. If ye loved me, you would rejoice. Why are you sorrowful? I told you I'm going to my father. That should make you happy. 
Something for us to think about when we think about facing the death of our loved ones and facing death ourselves. Jesus says a proper perspective on his death and consequently on our death is rejoicing. Why? Because I go to my father. My father is greater than I. Now have I told you before it come to pass that when it's come to pass, you might believe. Jesus says, I'm telling you of my glory. I'm telling you of my person. I'm telling you of my Father. In chapter 16, Jesus continues some of these same thoughts as he's encouraging his disciples and preparing them for what's to come. And these are words that they weren't able to keep in remembrance. They weren't able to remember in the few days that followed as they saw Jesus crucified, as they fled, and as they huddled in the upper room wondering what was going to happen next. Even when Jesus rose from the grave and appeared before them, remember Thomas, the doubter, says, I won't believe. Well, Jesus had told them all these things. But Jesus reminds them more of the comforter. He says in... Verse 5 of 16. Now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you asketh me whither goest thou. But because I've said these things, sorrow hath filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he'll reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they believe not on me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. Of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he'll guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself. But whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. Catch this in verse 14. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. He shall glorify me. What does the Spirit do in the lives of the saints? It glorifies Jesus Christ. It extols his name. It lifts him up. Why? It makes him the object of our worship. Worship must have an object. Everybody worships something. What do we worship by nature? We worship our own pride, the pride of life, which flows out into all of the, the sins recorded in Scripture and recorded in our own lives. We lust. We desire. We seek our own things. Why? Because we feel like we're the most important, right? Number one, me. No. The Spirit leads us into all truth. What does the Spirit do? It glorifies Jesus Christ. It lifts Him up. It makes Him appear so glorious that we pale in comparison. And it brings us to the point the Apostle Paul was at. When he said, whether by life or death, so that Christ is magnified in my body, I will rejoice. That's all that I want. That's all that I desire. And that's where the child of God lives. Why? Because it's Christ in us. The Spirit has brought life, and that life has brought understanding. 
Jesus Christ prayed in the next chapter, John 17. He prayed to the Father, and what did he pray? He prayed, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. He's given us the word of God, whereby we understand more and more and more about him. What are we looking for in in the word? You know, some of us study the Bible looking to understand theology. Wanting to understand a system of salvation or wanting to understand God's law, the rules we're supposed to live by. All of those things are contained in the word. But if that's what we're looking for when we're reading the word of God, we're already going astray. Because we have a man-centered view of the scripture. What are we to look for in the word of God? We're to look for the person of Jesus Christ. We're to look for the glory of God because it's on every page. Jesus spoke to the erring Pharisees and what did he say to them? Search the scriptures for in them you think ye have eternal life. They are they which testify of me. The only good you're going to find in the word is when you find Jesus Christ, when you find God manifest, when you see his power, you see his glory, when Christ is extolled, then and only then will you receive in the word something of value. And what is that? Does the word contain commandments? Yes. Does the word contain instructions? Yes. Is there truth in the word? There is, absolutely. And that truth must be present. But what does that truth do? That truth combined with the Spirit which glorifies Jesus Christ enables us to worship as true worshipers. One thing our text shows us is that all worshipers are not true worshipers. The hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such To worship him. God is not looking for the worship of those who do not have the spirit and do not have the truth. That's something we should understand from reading the gospels. Is that Jesus Christ wasn't trying to get worshipers who didn't love him. Who didn't understand him. Who didn't desire to follow him. It's why Jesus was able to look at those Pharisees and rather than trying to convince them or persuade them or draw them to him, he was able to look at them and he was able to say, you're a generation of vipers. John the Baptist the same, you generation of vipers who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Jesus looked at the Pharisees and he said, you're whited sepulchers. On the outside, you're beautiful, you're white, you're pristine, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. He was able to preach the gospel without fear of men and what they would think and how they would respond and what they would say. Why? Because he wasn't trying to entice them to become followers. He was declaring truth, unashamed. Why? Because that's what magnified his name and his glory. When he came to the well and found this woman, he said, woman, give me to drink. And she upbraided him. She said, why is it that you being a Jew ask drink of me who am a Samaritan? Don't you know the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans? Jesus said, if you knew. If you knew the gift of of God. You would have asked 
of me, and I would have given you living water. As we hear the word of God proclaimed, as we look into the word of God and read, are we considering the gift of God? Do we know the gift of God? Do we know who it is that we're encountering? And how do we respond? She didn't get it. Even after he said that, she didn't understand why she's thinking with natural mind, with natural thoughts. Like Nicodemus, a man skilled, a master in Israel. Rabbi, master, teacher. We know that you're a teacher come from God. Because no man could do the things that you do, except it were given to him of the Father. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom. What are you talking about? You mean I need to enter into my mother and be born? Natural thinking, a natural mind. Paul writes to the Corinthians who were ever enticed to return to their natural wisdom and their the politics of social engineering going on in their city, the university culture. And Paul writes and says, I didn't come to you with excellency of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. I could have come with a really good argument. I could have come with a lot of wisdom, a lot of knowledge. I could have dotted every I and crossed every T and presented an oration to you. But instead, verse 2, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. That is, I wasn't trusting in myself and I was doing that which is counter to my natural thinking. My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He says, I came to you desiring true worship. And true worship wasn't going to come from my carefully articulated arguments. It wasn't going to come from the wisdom of my speech and my elocution. It was going to come from the power of God. It was going to come from the demonstration of the spirit and of power. Prior to this, he says, the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. What's the preaching of the cross? Well, that's what he says in the Roman letter is God's ordained means of salvation, right? Isn't that what he said in Romans chapter 1? The power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but to us which are saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, I'll bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. For after that the wisdom in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. The woman said, Our fathers. Saying these mountains are where you ought to worship. You say in Jerusalem, who's right? 
The Jews require a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. What is it we worship? Who is it we worship? We worship Jesus Christ. We worship him because he's glorious, because he's worthy of our worship. And if we're in our right minds, if we have sober minds, if we consider things the way they are, and that is always the struggle. That's why Paul's prayer is what? That we would have sobriety, that we would have our right minds. Again and again, that word is employed in the scripture. If we have our right minds and we're considering things rightly, then we have the attitude of the Apostle Paul as he writes to Timothy. He says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me, for he counted me faithful, putting me in the ministry, who was before a blasphemer, a persecutor, and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ came in the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy that in me first Christ Jesus might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Paul is considering his own experience and I would invite each of you to consider your experience in the light Paul does. Who were you before? Before Jesus Christ, before his gospel, before your understanding, before the light dawned in the darkness of your natural soul, who were you? Paul says, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and injurious. I was a sinner. I was a liar. I was selfish. Who were you before Jesus Christ? Paul considers this and he he says it publicly for the world to see. And he says, you want to know the truth? This is a faithful saying. This is worthy of your belief, of your acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the chief. Why? Paul says, I obtained mercy that Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering. Jesus Christ put up with my sin. A holy, righteous God. Stood and watched my sin. Might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. That's you. That's me. Paul says, I'm a pattern. God's purpose was at work even in allowing my sin that he might forgive me for a pattern to others. And what does this do? In Paul's life, as he considers what God has done in him, for him, through him, as you consider who you were, who you are, and better yet, who you shall be, because, you know, like John Newton, we thank God we're not what we once were, but we give thanks that we're not what we will be. When you do that, You're ready to worship. Paul breaks forth in this exaltation of praise. Now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Then we're fit to worship him. Why? Because we have the spirit. We have truth. We can extol him because we know him. And we have a relationship with him. 
And we can say with David, all the nations shall bow down and worship before him. And we rejoice that while we worship him now with the light of his word and the presence of his spirit, there's a day coming when we'll see him as he is, when we'll know even as we are known, and then we're going to worship him. We're going to worship him forever with perfection of praise. And we know something else. We know in that day every knee is going to bow before him. What's that word bow? Worship. Every knee is going to bow. Everyone is going to worship. Every tongue is going to confess. Every tongue is going to praise. They're going to confess. They're going to confess what? Confess his glory, his praise. That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. That's what true worship is. Now this woman by the well gained an understanding as Jesus spoke to her. He finally explained when I'm talking about water, I'm talking about the spirit. And when I'm talking about worship, I'm talking about spirit and truth. And she left and went into the city and said to the city, come, come see a man who showed me all things ever I did. And what do you do when you see Christ? When you know him, when you extol him, when you worship him, you go and tell everyone you know, come, come see this man. Why? I don't want to talk about me. I don't want to talk about what I'm doing or what I have to offer or my ideas or my education or my glory. I want to tell you about Jesus Christ. Come see the only man that matters. Come see my Lord. Come worship him. And what did Jesus tell the disciples? Go. Go to all the world and do what? Teach them all things whatsoever I've commanded you. Tell them about me. And those who believe, those who believe, you baptize them. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And you disciple them. And you make them like you, worshipers of the God of all glory. Thank you for your attention this morning. I pray the Lord would bless us so we can live in accordance with his word.